Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. Let's go set something on fire. In this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I sit down with Tim Easton. Tim is a singer-songwriter based out of Nashville. He was raised in Akron, Ohio, and was influenced by a combination of pop icons like the Beatles and the Stones and bluegrass folk legends like Doc Watson and John Prine. After college, Tim found himself busking in the streets of Paris, London, Dublin, Amsterdam, Madrid, and Prague on and off for seven years, at one time alongside anti-folk hero Beck Hansen. Tim has recorded and toured with some of the top names in the music business. His first release, The Truth About Us, featured members of Wilco as the backing band. In 2003, his follow-up, Break Your Mother's Heart, received four stars in Rolling Stone magazine. Tim and I talked about his journey as a singer-songwriter, how living in North America, Asia, Europe, and Central America have influenced his outlook and perspective. We even covered Tim's first talent show, to busking in Europe, and how touring around the world has improved his craft. Tim talks about how his routine has changed over the years. We discuss our connections to Shakespeare and Company Bookstore in Paris. Spoiler, Tim's experience is a lot more entertaining. It was an honor having Tim join me on the show. I thank him for his time and insights. His new album, You Don't Really Know Me, A Return to a Full Backing Band Sound, was produced by Brad Jones and Robin Eaton in Nashville. And it's going to be released on Black Mesa Records in August of this year. I hope you enjoy the episode. There's a full moon over the Nashville town. The streets are nearly quiet. Save the barking dogs and the occasional siren And your voice on the radio Calm and sweet and cool and low Voice on the radio gets me by There's a souvenir for every joint you played From Chicago to Galway town Summer where lovers are laughing As they lay each other down Voice on the radio, calm and sweet and cool and low. Voice on the radio makes love smile. Tim Easton, thank you so much for joining me on the Iowa Idea podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind, for, for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, thanks, Matt. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so I'm uh, primarily a, a songwriter. I was born in upstate New York. My mom is Canadian. Um, my dad was from, from uh, Albany, New York, and uh, I was born in Lewiston, New York. I was the youngest of seven kids, and uh, so that's a lot of vinyl records to crawl over through the 70s, and um, two sisters, four brothers, you know, and uh, also 
that got me entertaining early, I guess. So I kind of was fortunate or and or spoiled in that in that regard. And um, and then we moved to Japan when I was a kid. So that kind of had a profound effect on my traveling and stuff like that. So second, third, fourth grade in Japan, and then back to Ohio, Akron, Ohio. My dad worked for Goodyear. So I grew up in the Midwest, more or less, um, with with some with quite a bit of traveling in there because of my parents and stuff. And then um, I went to Ohio State and I studied poetry there. Uh, got right into the, the literature, which you know in college means slacking off uh, pretty good and getting into trouble. Uh, you know, um, and um, had uh, had yet to go to visit the state of Iowa until I started to take to the road myself. Um, got just got into the songwriting and was fortunate, you know. And then I I I did go overseas early on during my college years, and that and then I that led to like a, a period of like seven years of vagabonding around Europe, which definitely laid the course for my uh, stories and songs, and. Um, that was kind of a, a serious period of my of my life through my 20s where I was just, you know, hitting the streets and I had some jobs too. Then I came back, signed a publishing deal here and was off to the races, um, continued to uh, to have a, a little success and also a little trouble, which is my, my wild lifestyle, which uh, landed me in a marriage. And, uh, <laughs> and then uh, I became a dad and, uh, you know, that's probably right right now. I have a 10-year-old daughter, and I guess if I could focus on, like, my greatest accomplishment, you know, recently is, uh, like, living in here in Tennessee. I'm, I'm divorced now. I live in Tennessee, and I, I work really hard on songs and writing. Uh, it's a daily thing for me. Um, I have had this job for quite a few years now. It's, it's funny for me to call it a job, but I'm a, I'm a big devotee of the, of the Woody Guthrie School of, of working and improvising. And, and um, letting the folk music kind of dictate it, uh, lead it to the campfire, which is basically my thing. So um, I, and I, I'm a, you know, I'm a huge film buff and I'm a huge uh, literature buff too. So I, I kind of think all those things are important to, uh, to help keep his creative life going. And uh, let me see what else. I'm a Chinese fire horse in that sign. Let me see. Uh, <laughs> I'm, a, I was going, I'm a tourist. Is that not? So, uh, so, yeah, so, so many different threads I'd like to, I'd like to pull on. I am, I think I'm really curious if we don't mind just kind of starting with, uh, living abroad and the perspectives that that can provide. Uh, and, and thanks for, I didn't realize you lived in, in Japan early in your life, but I, I do know that, uh, you know, you've, uh, we're busking and living in different different areas of, of Europe. So we have Paris, London, Dublin, Amsterdam, Madrid, and Prague. What do you think that's done for you? Because that's, that's a really broad perspective that I think a lot of folks in the States don't have. But what do you think that did for you and, and, and your, your outlook or your creative process? Yeah, I just looking at that list, I feel like skipping Italy would be a big uh, would be a big problem. And also, I, when I was 16, I went to the Dominican Republic and did this like junior Peace Corps thing. Without a doubt, that broadened my, you know, my third world experience just completely altered what it was like to be an American. You know, I met people down there that considered themselves Americans as well. You know, so I, I basically learned that I learned how great we had it. You know, that's another big one. Like I learned that not everybody was uh, into the United States uh, is, you know, that, that there was some disagreements there. I, I learned um, 
I learned how important our music and art and culture was to other people. You know, the, the, that the blues and, and rock and roll and, and such, like just really, you know, changed the world and electrified the world and, and, and you know, became the basis for a lot of, of music that, that existed um, and exists today. So it's basically a, a huge lesson in, in my country's influence and also um, my, the, my own country's um, negative uh, connotations, you know, and I, taking things for granted was uh, part of it too, you know, just everything about, about living here is quite easy when you go to the third world. And I, I, I wish that all Americans could travel I mean, I, I kind of took it over the edge there, you know. I'm still, I'm still addicted to it. I yeah. still love doing it. This year during the pandemic, have been staying right here. Actually, grateful for that because of the time with my daughter. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I uh, I had a a manager early in my career, and I remember him saying that the difference between you today and you tomorrow are the people you meet, the books you read, and the places you go. And so I'm just. Yeah, that that's why you know all the those different perspectives you have from seeing seeing things from different angles. I really appreciate you sharing that. I do want to dig back, kind of as a music nerd. Uh, you know, some you you said a lot of vinyl to crawl through, uh, and uh, can you? I know you've you've said in the past. I've read that uh, you know, kind of some standards like. Doc Watson, John Prine, Beatles, Stones. Do you remember go-to records as a kid that just filled you with absolute joy or or maybe the songwriting bug kind of bit um, you then? Yeah, a couple of experiences. It was my mom who played me um, the early Bob Dylan stuff, specifically the tune uh, With God on Our Side, which mentions all this historical things and, and World War II and the, the, the uh, destruction of the Indians. And so... That was like when I first really listened to, you know, I was like, wow, songs are like big movies, you know, on their own. And that was a pretty intense uh, uh, memory of mine that my, my, do my, um, my mom sat me down and uh, made me listen to that. Today's her birthday, actually. Um, she's passed a couple of years now, but, uh, you know, that, that's a big one. And um, the other one would be, yeah, the Rolling Stones, like High Tide Greengrass, for some reason, and the, you know, and then uh, Magical Mystery Tour is an odd yeah. one for me. I mean, I wouldn't call that my favorite Beatles album, but when you're a kid, so this is a weird experience. This is very factual for me. I, I for some reason, when I read Huckleberry Finn, and when I read Tom Sawyer, on the couch at my parents' house, I put Magical Mystery Tour on the stereo on repeat. So now those two things are like completely intertwined for me. You know, I just I would put the you know the old turntables had the repeat. Yeah function on them so i would just that stuff and then i would do that i would go to bed and put it on repeat so like the album some girls by the rolling stones which came out you know that's one of the first albums i bought like in the store and i remember it i was like you know so that, those albums uh those ones i've mentioned um and a couple others are ingrained so deeply in my subconscious and in brain that i i can kind of breathe them or whatever like i know yeah. every aspect of them and then even the scratches on it. I was going to say just the hiss or the pop or a scratch that's unique to that 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 copy of vinyl that you had. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I I love that my um, my my dad uh, had a what I thought was a huge vinyl collection. You know when I when I was growing up and I, I do remember as a young kid I think it was 
uh, my parents found that to be a very easy babysitter is when my dad showed me mm -hmm. how the how the stereo works and the records but it was from uh he'd have things like from you know johnny cash and mm -hmm. old willie nelson to all all the british invasion bands oh. to even yeah. like 60s comedy records well, um, yeah, you had a hipster dad yeah <laughs> and and if you uh, uh my dad passed away a few years ago a very quiet person he was uh he was a firefighter and uh hung wallpaper and painted on the on the side and very introverted but uh when you would look at his records that's that's what my friends would joke is my dad was a hipster before he yeah he was a, he was a he, yeah he was a garage sale fanatic he loved going yeah. to garage sales he the music that he had so we uh, just call them americans you know that's what they are <laughs> they're like they're american people they had you know bill cosby was putting out an album a year or something back then right like yeah those, you know it's it's i mean i people like try, try to shrink it, uh, uh, scare away these ideas of these characters that became vilified in our life but like when i was a kid I memorized that stuff. Like, why is there air? Those like early Bill Cosby albums. So it's like that taught me about comedy. George Carlin didn't come into the play until I, you know, got over to my, you know, my brother's collection and stuff like that. But um, I think comedy albums too. It's like that's just not a thing now. It's comedy specials. Right. Right. But I think those are really important, actually, in informing your your outlook on life. Those are our philosophers, right? That's right. And yeah, it, it sets all kinds of uh, filters, good or bad, on the way we start to process other information. Right. Uh, so you're just backing up a little bit to you're, you're in Ohio, you're at Ohio State. Were you in bands in high school? Were, did you have bands or were you performing before you got to college? Or is that mm -hmm. when the performing bug started? I did a couple of talent shows that were pretty bad. I think the first talent show I did, I played like a Peter, Paul and Mary folk song. <laughs> which says a lot about what I, I was started in, like I'm a folky, you know, but that was like manufactured folk music. If you find out later, that was kind of like a, a manufactured band by a impresario business guy, uh, Grossman, uh, Dylan's manager. But I, I played, you know, and then I, I think I didn't pass the audition for one test. I think I was playing Rocky Raccoon in the white album, which is another album, by the way, that's like a big thing from my childhood. Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't good enough to play in bands in, in, uh, in high school. I was, I just didn't, didn't have it. I didn't, I didn't, I needed to go to Europe and do those seven years on the streets. That's where I really learned to then stand in front of a, an audience because there you're trying to capture an audience as they're moving. So no, high school, not, I'm not, I'm pretty slow on the draw. I think that's another story of my life is being a slow learner or taking my time. What, uh, what, what was the uh, the the idea or goal when you when you set out to to head over to Europe then for a while? And, oh. and if you don't mind too, I'll follow that up with: uh, was there was there a process or routine? So I know you're really big right now on having a cadence or regular songwriting, but did you have a regular performance routine? Hmm. Well, I probably went to England. Well, I know I went to England first, and it probably had a lot to do with that's a foreign country where they speak my language, you know, I can understand, I won't, you know, and I, I've studied Spanish and I spoke Spanish pretty good by then actually, um, because of my experiences with Amigos, Amigos de las Americas, it's like this junior Peace Corps thing. That's what brought me to the Dominican Republic. And it was like working in barrios. So I had that Spanish in me, 
and I went to England and I then went to France and Spain soon after, but I, I really got over there just to, you know, I needed to stand somewhere and play. And I got in, I, I knew you could. So um, at first I, I was part of this thing called British Universities North American Club, BUNAC. It's like getting a green card over there, except it was a blue card. And you had to, you had to be a college student. You had to prove that you were coming back to college so that you weren't gonna stay over there. So I got over there and you know, I got a job as a bus boy. Uh, I was a busboy at the Hard Rock, actually, in London before, before it was uh, kind of a thing. A t-shirt, you know, it just wasn't really a thing then. As it turns out, at that time, Bob Geldof had just been knighted by the Queen for Live Aid. So he had his party there. So all of a sudden, I was surrounded by all these rock stars, like early on, like just got the job. I'm like, oh, what's going on here? But I, I um, and I remember, I remember uh, meeting Elvis Costello then, you know, that those like, and I was just like, okay, these are just people. And I got right into the subway, the underground, and I started playing and I was playing, probably playing some, some Beatles, but then I quickly realized that if I were to play Sonny Terry and Brian and McGee or Doc Watson or Muddy Waters or American music, roots music, I was, I was kind of like, that's, I feel comfortable with this music. It's really basic, really easy. Um, I don't have to worry about the singing so much. It's more about emotion. And uh, people responded, you know, like, oh, that's an American singing American music. That's not uh, some, some guy from Hackney, you know, that, that loves uh, Muddy Waters. So it was kind of cool. And then I, you know, I went to Spain and started doing that. And um, I already forget the second part of your question. <laughs> No, that's great. Is I, 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 so this is uh, something I saw you post recently on social media was just about kind of routine uh, oh, and yeah. in, in, in being a, a better songwriter. So I was kind of curious if, um, and I'll, maybe I'm oversimplifying it, it's calling it like this Midwestern work ethic, but did you have a routine? Like, I'm going to get yeah. up, I'm going to do these things or. <laughs> that's why, that's why the question like went in and out of my brain. You know? <laughs> There was negative routine. I mean, yeah. I, I don't, I can't, I don't think uh, uh, the burgeoning, the, the, the artist as a young man or whatever you want to call it, the routine was just get out there and see the world and experience and live and not, not worry so much about documenting it. I mean, I, I knew, I was like, I can't, I, I went to write songs. They were all kind of like teen angst, you know, I'm upset with my parents kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I hadn't been, I'd been in love, but I didn't quite understand what was going on there. And um, I, I needed to have some life experiences. And that is another part of it. I was like, well, I can't hitchhike around America, but I can go to Europe where it's kind of accepted. And Ireland, for example, is accepted to hitchhike. So I got over there and just started living. And while I was doing it, the routine was um, uh, to, to basically learn these Woody Guthrie songs and these Muddy Waters or, or Doc Watson or, or you know just folk music that pulled you in. That was a routine. Then get up and and busk them to make money so that I could eat and drink. You know what I mean? Like, right, right. I had to turn I had to turn the tourist money into my beer money, basically. Was, <laughs> that was the routine. Yeah, I uh, I just recently. Well, it was when we could travel, but uh, we took our kids for the first time uh, a couple summers ago. Went to uh, went to Dublin, London, Paris. Ooh. And as you as you said, part part of the routine, you know, for us was my my wife's fluent in French, and she's she's lived in in France at different times. But for for the kids and for me, yeah, you you can go to go to England, go to Ireland, and 
feels like you're you're in a different place but the language is accessible and so like it was a kind of a warm-up before we spent a little bit yeah. more time in Paris with the with the kids but yeah that's uh, so we we try as much as we can afford to get our kids out to to things that are are broader than than the U.S. when we can. I talk about it with my daughter too. I'm like I'm good. Paris is the big one because I lived in Paris for a year. I started I was hanging out with Irish au pairs though you know Irish girls. <laughs> yeah. So my my French did not improve. Uh, I have to say, but uh, you know I was reading a lot of Henry Miller and uh, you know a lot of like. You know, I was basically in that in that period that those young twenties, and um, I loved it, but like I can't wait to go back there with my daughter. I'm yeah. like so excited to bring her back, and that that is Paris is definitely one of the places that she gravitates to. Like she really wants to visit that. So I'm kind oh. of that's great. Yeah, my wife, my wife and I were actually um, we were engaged about a block away from Shakespeare and Company bookstore. So. Oh, so I lived there. Okay, all right. I lived I lived upstairs there. I was there. Uh, I knew George Whitman. Uh, right I worked, yeah, I worked for him. And when I my apartment, um, wow, that's beautiful. I mean that that scene right there where you're you're facing that the the facade of uh, of uh, Notre Dame just yeah. across the Petit Pont right right across that first chunk of the Seine. That is like a huge chunk of my romantic you know memory of of that city because I lived over I lived on the second floor of Shakespeare and Company. Um, for a, a short period of time. And then I had to leave, I had to exit my room because uh, Lawrence Ferland Getty was moving in. That's like, the, that's the period of time I was there. I was like, I was like, really? What? Oh, this is amazing. Another experience for me there, which is really big and pivotal and something I've written about in a story, um, uh, just a true thing that happened is that Gregory Corso visited the, the bookstore um, while I was there. And he had an entourage of like New Yorkers with them, you know. I just remember they were like a lot of leather jackets and they were tough and they were loud and they were talking. And then he got in a fight with this German professor of literature. So it was like the German professor it was like, this is right out of like a Bologna novel. I mean, this is insane. Like this, this really happened. So I'm down there, I'm watching Gregory Corso. He's like, I'm like, that's a that's one of the beat that's that's the guy, you know, it's one of them that's still alive besides Burroughs at that time. Yeah. Uh, oh no, Ginsburg would have still been alive, I guess. This was, um, this was, uh, well, maybe not. This is 1991. Um, the Gulf War just was going. Okay. Uh, so I'm not sure if Allen Ginsburg was still with us. Uh, but, anyways, um, Corso and this guy are going at it. The guy is basically saying that your writing is, you're, it's not poetry, it's just typing. You know, that, that insult that, right. That, uh, uh, what's his name would have said about Jack Kerouac's writing. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just one of those, uh, why am I, I, and I, 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 I say, I pull off the American uh, anthology of poetry. It's right there. I grab it. I'm, you know, everybody's kind of watching this spat. And I, I say, no, he's a poet. Look, he's got, he's got a poem in this book. And uh, it's his most, his most anthologized poem. It's called marriage. And, uh, and uh, I was way, I, I just interrupted the conversation. And I said, no, he really is a poet. He's got a poem in this, in this, in the anthology of American poets. And, and Gregory Corso looks at me and he says, actually kid, in the case of that one, he, he might be right. You know, and I was like, and everybody laughed. And uh, I was like, you know, I, it's just classic. Like the, 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 the big star of, you know, doesn't like his number one hit. 
you know, like, right. oh, yeah, that's actually just kid stuff. So it was really like, there was like, there was some merriment and joy. I'm glad I interjected there, but um, that is a, that is a real story from my thing where a, a poet like just completely was self-deprecating about his most anthologized poem um, in the book. So pretty, you know, li Shakespeare and company. I mean, yeah, don't get me started. Man. Yeah. I was there for the fire. There was a fire that, that I wasn't there during the fire, but I was there afterwards and helped, you know, we read poetry out front for long periods of time to raise money and raise awareness. And uh, yeah, I mean, many, many hours of uh, sneaking in and out of that place after hours and uh, drinking wine by the, by the side of the river there. Love it. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, you know, <clears throat> I'll, I'll give you the location. You'll know exactly where we, we were engaged on a bench in uh, Square Rene Viviani. So the, just that, that tiny little park that I is- I slept in that park. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I've slept in that park because yeah. I had to, because I got locked out of Shakespeare and company. Like I couldn't get in because I stayed out late, you know, yeah. I've slept in that park. Wow. I've, yeah, man. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. That, no, and then, so we, we, we brought the kids back. We, we did have to stop by, but we were, um, <laughs> that was after the Notre Dame fire. So we couldn't, oh. we, cause what, you know, if you go up to the top of Notre Dame, you can, you, it's a great view of the city and you can look yeah. right around. So we didn't get to do that, but I love that you're, that you were living right there. And, and just like in the, at some level as an artist for you, all these different things like travel, debate, what is art and inserting yourself in, in kind of what sounds like a, a, yeah. a super fun conversation. Yeah, we were vagabonds, man. And I, you know, we actually used to go to the market. Uh, I forget what the name of the market was like on Wednesdays and the, you, the, the, the vegetable and, and fruit vendors yeah. would like have their castaway, their box of just things that were dented or bruised. You're not going to sell. We'd grab those, make a big stew out of it. So I, I, I stayed there periodically. I lived in the Vante in the 20th on Dismont, way on the west side of Paris like about, you know, about nine, nine o'clock on the dial. And um, let me see here. I'm looking at Paris. Yeah. Yep. No, I'm sorry. Three o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> anyways, uh, it was way on the side. So that was where I lived eventually. And I, I was an au pair and I took care of the, the minister of agriculture. Actually, I got this sweet gig where I was like watching his 10 year old and seven year old. Like I would walk the seven year old home from school and then hang out with the two of them and speak English. That was my job for two hours a day. Um, and then every seven weeks, I had two weeks off. And I explored Europe from that base of having my own apartment. And that is where like, I crossed paths with some pretty fascinating people at that time. Um, Beck, Beck Hansen came through. Um, of course, not famous at that time, just a, a young kind of vagabond guy. He was there to check out his grandfather or just to do his European yeah. vagabond thing and hang out with his grandfather, Al Hansen, who was kind of part of the Fluxus art movement in Germany. And back, this, you know, I met, and we, we took to the streets together and busked a lot. And he also knew a lot of Woody Guthrie tunes, and he, but, but he had been writing songs. And he had these songs that were really simple and really basic. Like, let's go set something on fire. You know, and just like this real going nowhere fast or, and, and they were just real basic three chord songs. And he was already writing these tunes at like 21. I think he, he was 20 or 21 years old. Um, and we once went to uh, Dave, which was within walking distance of my flat 
met three, uh, he and I and this other guy named James Rowe, the three of us went there, met three girls from Iceland at Jim Morrison's grave. We all had our guitars at the time. That was how obnoxious, you know, he pictured the scene. And there's a bunch of, you know, hippies and vagabonds hanging out and um, gutter punks and whatnot. And uh, we met these three girls, brought them back to my apartment, cooked them, you know, spaghetti and, uh, and drank wine. And then we pulled out our guitars and started playing and they left. They're like, you guys are kind of a little too weird for us, you know? <laughs> so what brought you back to the States? Um, well, I think it was time to make a record of this music that I had been writing. You know, I, I ended up in Prague. That was kind of the, Prague was where, that was where the place to be, 91, 92, because the, the Berlin Wall had fallen down a few years before. Uh, Glasnost or whatever it is with the, yeah, the period. Yeah. No, uh, and um, so everything was changing, um, uh, and 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 the Russians were backing out, and so you know, um, Czechoslovakia at the time was electing, you know, had a poet that was in prison, a playwright that was now the president. Yep. I went there. The Velvet Underground was on tour. They played there. I saw the original members of the Velvet Underground in Prague. The president, Václav Havel, was right there. Yeah. You know, um, we actually had snuck, we're sitting in his seats when he showed up. So we had to like back up into our seat. It was like in this incredible building that was used for communist like meetings and stuff. That all the seats had these fancy buttons on them. And it was in this intense hall. Uh, so I, I, I basically was on the streets playing and this, gen this Polish gentleman named Jurek Podulka, he had a little record label and he had cassettes releases and he had an eight track at, at his house he found me on the bridge. We recorded. I was such a vagabond. Like I didn't have any place to stay. I, you know, I was just all over the place. Recorded a bit. We made an, made an album of eight songs, a couple of which I would still, you know, it was, it's a very big template of what I am today. It's like Sonny Terry Brandon McGee, Doc Watson, my friend JP Olson, who uh, ended up working for HBO. He, he just passed through town. He's just a great writer, I know. Um, he uh, is a teacher at Columbia now, actually. And uh, anyways, I covered him. And then a first couple of originals. So that template was made there. And then I was like, okay, it's time for me to start making records and, and come back home. So, you know, it's just like that call of, of, of where you're from and your roots, you know, and it let's, it's time to get back and, and get kicking it. Now, this is the 90s and there still aren't a bunch of country-esque Alt country, all that stuff has, you know, Uncle Tupelo was a band at that time, but there's not a bunch of that going on, you know, it just wasn't the scene yet, you know, we're talking a post Nirvana world, right, and then, um, yeah, then next thing you know, I'm at, a, I'm at a show where Johnny Cash is opening for Beck, a still unknown Beck at South by Southwest, and this is 96, 90, 94, yeah, yeah, 94, and, and I, I believe, um, you know, and then Kurt Cobain passes, uh, um, Beck becomes a superstar. And then that kind of like jolted me a little bit. I was like, okay, you know, this guy uh, is, is making records. I'm not him, I'm, I gotta do my thing. And I, I kind of leaned into the writing a little more and got a band going and that band got a publishing deal and a record deal pretty fast considering. I think, I think without the literary background, and that, that grounding of work 
that had me kind of writing lyrics that were a little bit separate from the class of say whatever my I mean there's great stuff on the radio I I'm not I'm not knocking any of that stuff through the 80s and 90s pretty powerful actually you know Prince and and then REM would be uh, REM would be another band if you when you could understand what they were talking about you know, the type that was quiet but like there was some there was a literate thing going on and there was a um kind of an activist side to it as well and in, in my in my case I kind of like set set into that group you know when you're when you're in your 20s and and whatnot you're not really I don't know you're not I, some people are very grounded and, and really kind of planning out their path I was just I was just you know going where the wind blew and, and, and really just kind of trying to get a good song down and a good you know a good band together Thanks. One of the themes I like to explore is uh, collaboration in the creative process. And so one of the things I'm interested in your journey is, uh, you know, Tim is solo artist, you've had bands, uh, and also the people you've assembled for albums. So at, at, at different times when it really is like just you and a guitar, mm-hmm. and then uh, was it last week, a couple weeks ago, I saw you performing... Uh, I think it was live on Facebook. Yeah. It was the truth about us, kind of a 20 year. And one of the things is kind of a music nerd. I loved the way you were talking about who was sitting in on what, who was doing what, who who did this. So I'm just really curious from your perspective, uh, I'm oversimplifying, but pros and cons of uh, an ensemble or yes. just getting your work done, being heads down and, and it, it's your song, your expression. If, if you don't mind pulling on any of those ham-fisted threads. Yeah, I um, I feel very lucky to have made records with the people I got to make records with. I don't know if I knew at the time how fortunate that was. I was just kind of stumbling still. I was really a stumbler for quite a while, you know, you know, drinking and smoking a lot and just kind of bouncing through life um, haphazardly. Now, as it turned out, I was able to record a little bit with some of the Wilco guys right out right after I started getting some heat from from the from the bigger companies and stuff and those I was under a lot of pressure I felt the pressure from that at the time um I I just know that it was today it resorts back to me busking again like that's what I'm doing in the pandemic I'm I'm resorting back to the guy that's by himself or maybe with one other partner because sometimes you meet someone on the streets and work yeah but really it's in my house right here in this room and I'm busking again. I'm busking on Facebook. I don't care if there's 12 people there or 60 people or 200 people. It's like, it's, it's, it's very small, but it's very focused. And there's like a, a world I can reach the world. So the collaboration today, um, I go into it a lot more seriously. Like I just finished making a new record and uh, it was way more thought I'm way more thoughtful. And I think, much better actually than the work I was doing 20 years ago. Um, at the time, there might have been something new or, or somewhat groundbreaking about it, but I all I hear is kind of like the drunken singer of the past, you know. So I I, I get a little bit of a heart pain because I'm like, oh man, you just you didn't even know how great you you, <laughs> you know that. But anyways, you can't change the yeah, past, so you just right. roll with it. But to today's collaboration, more thoughtful, and then but I can do it by myself. I mean, I don't mean to be Mr. Self-sufficient guy, but I am that guy. I can be that. Like, I don't need a band. 
I don't, but if there is one, if, if there's a backbeat, especially a drummer, like I will make that, I can improvise for days on, on a good drummer's beat. I just, it doesn't take much for me. So, um, but I learned to do it by myself. And therefore today I feel very self-sufficient when it comes to that. So I, a little bit of both. I'm looking forward to collaborating yeah. again, you know, improvising collaborate. Like the, there's musicians in the world, you just meet them and you're, you're making stuff. You can just do it, you know? Like there's some people that, I would, I'm infamous for asking a drummer from another band to just join me on stage. And some drummers are like, what? I don't know your stuff. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, no worries. But a lot of guys are just like, oh yeah. And they just jump in like, how hard can it be? It's rock and roll music. It's, you know, count to four and let's do this. It's all about feel. Yeah. And so I'm a big improviser and um, probably always will be. Thanks. And uh, through your career at different times, you, you've had your own label uh, and you've been on other labels. And then, and now your, your latest record, which will be coming out later this year is on a label. Mm -hmm. uh any from a from a creative or artistic perspective uh what are what are the pros of being on another label rather than your own oh that that's an excellent question because today really you should just start your own label and do what you can to get distribution and make do it all yourself um i was told early on by songwriters like that you know that's none of your business what it labels or publicists or managers or agents. It's like your job is to write the best song you can and just work on that and then work on, you know, performing it. And that's it. If, if nothing ever happens and you end up singing in your shed in the backyard for the rest of your life, that's it. That's, that's, you know, tough shit. That's, <laughs> you know, you know, but then <laughs> there's, you know, reality sets in, you're like, well, I want to work and I want to travel. And, you know, you, about, there's a lot about, being in the right place or being, being available, you know? Um, I don't go out as much or even if there wasn't a pandemic, but it's yeah. like the label thing is very, like I wanted to put this record, this new one on a label because I wanted to collaborate. You know, there's a collaboration right there. You know, I, I did a couple of folk things on my own, released them on my own, got help with distribution because I needed to make, um, I had gone through a divorce, and I had, I had lost money and I needed to like get back on my feet, you know, very, very polite of you to call it a career. Cause it's, it's a, it's, it's you know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. one of those things. It's like, I've had all this, I've had all this fortune and, and some, and a little bit of infamy too. And, um, and now it's like, oh yeah, I do make a living doing this. It is my career, but it still feels funny to call it that, but it's really, cause I, I, I've never, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life kind of thing, right? Like there's 24 hours in the day. Um, just get on it, you know, create for eight of those hours if you can, or if you're lucky, that's work, you know? So I, I don't know the label, man, I know I went, went around the, the corner with the, the thing, but it's like, if you're out there and you're a young songwriter, write the best songs you can, or, and, and then, and just writer in general, poet, it's like the today's self-publishing world is impressive, man. It's just, and you can make the music yourself. The very first one, just get right to it. Don't sit around and wait for someone to come along and tell you, oh yeah, you're good. Cause it's like, if it's good enough, it will, if it's good, it will get out to people. Someone's gonna hear it. That's a Guy Clark thing. It's like, if you write a good enough song, somebody's gonna hear it. And uh, you know, if you write a couple, then you might get a gig. 
question for you too, or just like reflecting back, because we're we're of similar age. And thinking back when you were describing late 80s, uh, early 90s, and you know, some friends of mine that were in bands, but the House of Large Sizes. <laughs> I'm not friends, but oh man, so many, so many house shows that I'd go to when I was an undergrad uh, at Gabe's, where the because uh, Gabe's is on the second floor. And I remember, I remember loading into Gabe's. Are you kidding yeah. me? <laughs> I know what Gabe's, I know, I know what it's like to carry an amp up the stairs in the wintertime. In, in, in Iowa. I, I think there should be like a kind of a, an achievement patch that people get that they, they survived a winter load in or load out at Gabe's because going yeah. up those those uh, slick steps with heavy equipment. It's so true. Big I amps there. or organs. I'm, I'm on that list of people that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. But the the difference when you said like self-publishing the the amount of equipment that is available now and i don't i'm not saying this like an old man like i had to walk to school uphill both ways right but how easy it is now to record to track where people needed to these these were expensive studio equipment pieces or everything was super lo-fi right at your house or like trying to protect two or four tracks bouncing things up and down where yeah where now you can just lay 30 tracks on garage band and not I, I still use my Pro Tools like a four track, you know, yeah. like I'm a kid in, my, in my bedroom and I'm trying to play tambourine and sing backing vocals at the same time. I tell you, man, there's two, it's two different things. Writing and then recording is a whole other art form and then performing is yet another one. So you got three things going yeah. on there. It's hard to be really good at all three of those things. And I, I got to say, man, like when it comes to recording, I love home recording. I love doing it. I'll be doing it later today, but when it comes to mixing and trusting my ears, because I was in all those rock and roll bands and the drums and the cymbals kind of shredded my my hearing. I trust that. I've I realized like, okay, I'm not that good at that. Let's let someone else really mix something that I've done. Or I try to keep it simple so it's not so hard to mix. But it's an art form that that young artists of today are kind of forced to learn to do that. Now they gotta be businessmen too. So you gotta wear four hats, right? Yeah, yeah. Create or the creator, the producer, some of, some people are really good at it, man. They get right into it and they, they learn on a four track and you got your, your Matt Wards or M Ward or someone like Jack White, you know, they start early and they get good and they know what they want. And, um, and, and it's really impressive, man, because that part of it to do all those things is what, you know, what, what society is asking of you. But then next thing you know, you got a Bandcamp page and you're putting records out, man. Right. So you might be able to you might be able to build from there, and then if if um, some famous blog or whatever that one's called that uh, the indie rock one pitchfork, yeah. you know, they got a new great band every week. That's the problem. It's like, oh my god, this guy's amazing. He's in his bedroom, you know that. That's really you know if you're if you really love what you do, and 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 it's going to show. It's going to get through. It's going to. So I I just say do it. You know don't spend too much time um you know listening about it's like get to work you know like you've got to actually work a little bit every day writing wise and recording wise to to build to assemble this uh this life of work yeah i'm drawing from a different discipline but uh one one of my uncles who was a professor uh he he was just he would encourage his students uh to just 
research and write five pages every day. And before mm-hmm. you know it, you're, you're going to be the expert on that topic, right? But like trying to, trying to help students in this case that get so like overwhelmed by what you're doing. And sometimes it's like, just, just go do and yeah. then see where it takes you is what I'm hearing from you as well. Action. Take yeah. some action. You know, you know, sometimes we got to sit on the couch and watch a Netflix documentary or whatever. There's education going on there. But like if you break it down into the 24-hour thing and you're sleeping for six to eight hours, you're at work for another six to eight. You don't want a job that exhausts you if you're trying yeah. to be creative. I got to say that's that's true too. A job that exhausts you make the creation creativity a little more difficult. But that leaves about eight hours. If you're working eight hours, sleeping eight hours, which is rough, at least eight hours to play, you know, yeah. or do whatever. And a lot of that might be some research and that's reading but like that daily writing, like I'm a big morning pages guy, you know, I get up and do it no matter what. And um, I think it's just like, let, let it out, get it, get it going, get it, let it flowing. And it's, I feel lucky in that, that, that um, no one really had to kind of tell me to do that. Or maybe somebody did along the way. Um, I think it's a clear, it's like showing up in action, doing the action of writing. Like last year I said, I'm going to write a, you know, not a big deal, right? You're going to write some crappy haiku yeah. along the way, but you're going to find out something, too, you know, yeah. when you're forced to just get that going. Yeah. Uh, some of my, uh, in my, my professional life uh, on the design side, I like with my design teams, sometimes I would just talk about like the Cal Ripken award, right? Some of that, I mean, some of it's just showing up day in and day out and, right. uh, that's part that's part of some of and some of it might feel like a grind but getting that then it makes the other stuff easier because i think uh well here here's here here's my thought i would i'd love you know i'd love confirmation or debate on it but i believe creativity is a muscle too and and you you can work it and exercise it but if you don't it atrophies and then it's harder to access and so i'm not sure how you feel about creativity uh, you know, as part of a routine to Being muscle. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely, it changes through time. Like the creative urges that I had in teens and twenties, it's a different attitude than today. Um, I'm actually, I do it more today, but back then you've got thoughts that only the youth have, you know, it's, it's one of those, they say that your creativity starts to wane yeah. for me it's picking up. Okay. Look at Lucinda Williams. Like, like look at uh, look at Bob Dylan. Like these these people. Bob Dylan had fame and fortune early on in life, and he didn't slack at yeah. all. And he got right. You know, he you could tell he comes when he's talking about fourteen. You know, poets from the 14, Italian poets from the fourteenth century or whatever. He read that stuff. You know, he's yeah. like he's a lifer. So I mean, the muscle. You, yeah, you got to keep doing it. Otherwise. Otherwise, yeah, it gets the habits of the the ritual of of creativity needs to be for else what what do you expect, you know you you sometimes you got to go to the beach and chill or whatever right. you know recharge yeah as, as <laughs> sometimes I, you got to recharge but even then you're 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 reading you're taking in something you're walking I think physical exercise and movement and diet is all all ties into it later when you get older. Right, right. You know, when you get older, you're like, oh shit! I if I, I just if I if I'm always eating bread and pizza, you know, my body starts to react differently. And I'm not I'm not creating. It's, it's very it's very fascinating. Diet 
and exercise become just as important as, as, uh, as really reading or watching a great film um, later in life when it, when it comes to creativity. Otherwise, you're physically not up for it, you know? So I, I want to, uh, because you, you've mentioned, uh, well, we, we talked about Gabe. So you've been on your tours, you've gone through Iowa City. Do you remember any other uh, venues in Iowa City other than Gabe's? Oh, man, I played a couple of in Iowa City or dives, bars, like yeah. Um, yeah. For me, you know, Iowa City, there was a band called House of Large Sizes. Yeah. That, yeah I crossed paths with them. I feel like I, one of them owned a thrift store. I think that wasn't Iowa City, though. That was maybe not Des Moines, but. Um, I think Cedar Falls. Other, um, Cedar Falls, right. Yeah. So that would be Cedar Falls. And then I played with David Zalo somewhere. That might have been Des Moines. But in Iowa City itself, I remember across the street from the bookstore, um, there was a bar that was like a dark wooden drinking bar. The Deadwood. The Deadwood. The Deadwood. That's totally it. <laughs> like that's that's where my mind goes. I'm like, in a, I'm in like a, a you know, a, I'm in Jesus' son, and yeah. I'm getting plowed at the Deadwood, like just with college girls or something. Yeah. You know, that's really, you know, intellectual. But nonetheless, <laughs> right. you know, thrift store savvy college girls. And uh, I just remember like going from that bookstore to that bar, to the bookstore, to the bar. And um, I must have played some other gigs in town. I remember going to a record store there a lot. I remember being kind of fascinated with just the town itself after I found out about the workshop. I don't think I ever applied to be in that, in the, in the workshop, but I knew uh, folks that did it and also I'm big fan of Chris Offit um, who was a did he teach there as well but he, he's teaching there for a while period right because I I was a big I'm, you know a big fan of Kentucky Straight and uh, all of his writing actually I read most of his books I think I've read all of them but um, he definitely had a profound impact on me like um, on my, my early writing it goes way back to the very my first albums um i i credit him i thank him on um my first solo album because of a song called everywhere is somewhere um, which is written about a friend of mine who passed away from a heroin overdose and um that i everywhere is somewhere straight i think that expression was something that one of those people in the hollers said so i thanked him and, uh, so, so you got to see him in person and thank him for and it? Yeah, one day I was passing through town. <laughs> I, I thanked him on the on the thing, but I, one day I was passing through town. I was having a lunch at a place that you probably had lunch at many times. So if you walked out of the bookstore and went right and then turned right at the first street, there was this little uh, cafe um, sandwich shop. And yeah. I, was having, I was having uh, lunch in there, really just driving through town one day and probably went to the bookstore and, you know, um, and I saw him and I, 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 I saw him there and I knew who, what he looked like. So I introduced myself and, and met him and, and um, yeah, he was very cordial to me. Um, I had other friends that were, that knew, knew him as a kind of a bit of a gambler, I guess. I'm not sure, I'm not sure where he lives there. I know he started writing for HBO, but I, I've lost yeah. touch with him. Exchanged a few emails uh, yeah. around that time. And uh, it's just it's like one of those things where like, oh, that's a writer, you know, I'm, I'm here in my three minute songs. This is what I can do. That's what he can do. Like I, I, 
I found out pretty early on that my, and I'm trying still, but I found out that my rewrite slash edit editor, who I don't invite for the first draft of a song or a story, I don't invite, just, I, I'm just going for it. Like later getting that person to show up for the rewrite, second, third draft, very difficult for me, especially in the longer forms. So I was like, I just had such reverence and awe for a guy that was a, a, a contemporary writer who was actually doing it. And, and uh, you know, I always just wanted to know, I was like, is it, is it as lonely as I think it is? <laughs> Your life of just like, yeah. solid, just like getting up and going for it. And this year, oh my God, what kind of masterpieces are gonna be coming out? From, uh, from all the solitude we've had this year. Uh, yeah, I, it's funny you said that because I, I was thinking about like some of the classics that I had to read in, in college, uh, but like some classic Russian literature where like these very dark, and, and I think there might be that vibe of just like a year of kind of darkness for folks or solitude and- Yeah, Dostoevsky, and, the Dostoevsky yeah, years. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, it's like he's got a whole novel about a guy with epilepsy. You know, it's just so <laughs> painful. It's just, it's, uh, yeah, that, I, that was, I was doing that in Paris. When I was in Paris, that's when I was reading the Dostoevsky as well. I mean, you have to have that period of your life where you're just absorbing it. Right. He, the, the actual reality is like, wow, this, this, this person did not get out much. You know, they, they had a vitamin D deficiency and uh, scurvy. And, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you know, I just, hats off to those novelists. I mean, because, um, while their, their American form or their Russian form, whatever, was replaced by the screenplay as the great accomplishment, you know, right. where it's still like, it's still like a, a mysterious, beautiful thing when someone comes forth with a, a new novel. It's like, oh yeah, you tucked away for a while and stayed, you, you're, you got off the Instagram and you went for it, you know, way to go, yeah. bravo. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, also, for me, finding time to consume some of those classics again, like uh, I know you just posted recently, too, about uh, some of the things related to songwriting is looking at I think you even shared a list of like 100 yeah. best movies. And uh, last Saturday night, my wife and I were were watching uh, 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 Seven Samurai. Right. Well, that's on the list. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and it was and, and I forgot that that. It, it's like a three and a half hour, four hour movie. <laughs> I'm thinking, um, what's the Swedish director, the Wild Strawberries guy? Um, uh, wow, I'm spacing out. Yeah. True, the French guys, Truffaut and, yeah. and you know the Italians, Fellini. Like right. those, those guys are all on the list. So you got eventually, you got to pull. You just got to go for it. You got to bite the bullet. As it turns out, La Strada is my, one of my favorites. But my mom made me watch that as a kid. So like this movie had a profound impact. It's called The Road. Profound impact on my life is I ju I'm just reading David Lynch's book about meditation, and he mentions La Strada as a profound influence on him. And um, the uh, yeah, there's a couple there's a couple films out there that I I still haven't seen, and you're you're kind of dreading like oh god man do I want to get into this existential angst? Do I have three hours to crush <laughs> my soul and spirit and wonder? <laughs> but yeah, you know it's it is part of I mean it's a, it's a joy that we even get to do that now because of Netflix and. Right. Amazon. You know, I know, sorry to pitch out these massive companies, but yeah. oh my God, if I had a list of just the films I've watched in quarantine, right. it would be a pretty, a pretty sizable. I can't help but think that it hasn't been a profound impact on me. I never saw five easy pieces until this last run. 
And I wrote a song the next day where a character is quoting that movie. So, um, you know, last night I watched Chinatown. Now I'd seen Chinatown before, but last night I watched it with a different set of a different, I, you know, I, I watched it from the point of view of a, of the screenplay. Right. Revered screenplay. Right. It's taught in schools and stuff. And I'm like, what, why? Ooh, it's Chinatown, Jake. It's, that's it. It's a, that, that's it. It's little nuggets. Yeah. Of Chinatown, and then all of a sudden, at the end, it's like, oh man, it's China. You know, the, you know, it's it's really. Um, but at first, you're like, what's the screenplay? What's the big deal here? I don't get it. You know. And now, yeah, you watch it once, and you go through it, and you feel it, and uh, yeah, it's uh, film. Film definitely has been a big help for, through this time, and all the power to the, the filmmakers. That are going for it and the writers that are that are still working on it yeah no that's great when you because it's been a, uh, a while since I, I saw chinatown but the uh uh just after jake you know is, is uh the message is sent and his nose is slit when he's just the amount of scenes he's walking around with that big bandage yeah. and it's just it's it's so absurd but it just that's part of what made the the movie just a treat for me <laughs> yeah it's very absurd but he still he gets the girl yeah. with that on, like that's part of the attraction. And it turns out, you know, she's a Faye Dunaway. It's like, it's kind of a, you know, her as in Bonnie and Clyde as well, you know, scary, sad person, but stunningly, you know, like these, yeah. these characters of like strikingly beautiful, but super tragic, like uh, their, like their story. So right. Pretty powerful, and I think uh, Denise Johnson is that how you pronounce his name? The, so the, the writer um, of Jesus's Son. Yeah, yeah, or or Dennis. I I don't know because I've only seen it print. I haven't heard, but yeah, is he he's an Iowa guy, right? So that he's yeah, part, he was a workshop product. Yeah, those are those are again those are young characters of um, extreme tragedy that that seem so you know because they were young, they're attractive. It's like youth. Is super attractive um your, your drugstore cowboy types it's like a it looks all hip and fun but really on on the underneath is like some serious trauma right that, that is is being exposed bit by bit and that's another one of his uh his strengths and those stories for sure so tim one of, one of the things I, I dig into and we we've been talking about it a, a little bit but with with guests i do like to talk about advice and advice you might oh, yeah. have and sometimes it goes in different ways sometimes we talk about like you know maybe good advice we receive from a mentor uh and sometimes we were too uh maybe too arrogant in our youth to like yeah. it, we almost made fun of it but then as we get older we we realize man that was profound and there's there there's a big payload in a small package in the mm -hmm. way somebody framed that we might have laughed at like a grandfather and uncle the way they used to phrase something or a teacher. Uh, we all, I also talk about advice from Austin Kleon's book, Steal Like an Artist. He says, when we give advice, we're just talking to our younger self. Mm -hmm. And so like either, either or both, if there's advice you wish you would have had earlier in your career or what's some good advice you received from a mentor that, that you continue to kind of unpack today? Um. Man, so, so much, right? We, we move into teacher mode. We can't help it. We were talking to our younger self. I, I hear you there. Um, if I look at a photograph of my 20-some-year-old self on the streets of Ireland as a busker, you know, what would I say to that guy? And then that's one way to look at it. And then I'm like, what about the 75-year-old looking at you today? 
both guys are saying carpe diem i think you know maybe the to the younger guy i'm like carpe diem but little take it easy on you know uh you know on the relationships or whatever like try to have compassion and um and then you know the older guy is saying to me it's like dude get to work come on time time and uh, chop, chop. <laughs> so yeah but uh, the, the main thing i i like say my my nugget and I don't really know if anybody said it to me, but it was just put to me. Um, I'll get back to what, what someone might've told me, you know, poets, teachers, basically they were like, they, they, were, they were taking my work and critiquing it. And then when it was bullshit, they told me that. They're like, they're like what is this? Did you write this on the commons on the way to class today? What is this? You, you think you can just improvise? A poem out of, out of, uh, out of fresh, out of air, just because you wrote this five minutes before class, didn't you? And I'm like, yeah. They're like, well, it's bullshit, you know. What do you, what do you, you're, you're, that's an, you're insulting me, okay? So that, that, the idea of like, there is some things that come out of the air, and you're there for it, but you got to do a lot of work to get to that. You got to do a lot of research, and this is where I tell people to study the heroes of your heroes. So that's, that's my main thing, which I just said the other day. Yeah, you want to read those classics. You want to watch those great films. You want to, um, you know, you want to, 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 you want to be present for the advice that you need. You're not going to be able to take it all. And when you're young, yeah. your attention span just isn't there. But I, I say study the heroes of your heroes until you get back to somebody scrawling on the wall of a cave. You know, basically, you like... You like uh, such and such band? Well, they're Beatle freaks. It's pretty easy for to see that now. Yeah. What do the Beatles listen to? Oh, early rock and roll, American rock and roll, Little Richard, uh, Chuck Berry, Buddy Holly, the Everly Brothers. Oh, who do they like? And then it just goes back until you're basically at, you know, in a cave with somebody, somebody's beating a stick on a rock, <laughs> someone's drawn, and there's someone tending the fire. And it's like this, this thing of going back in time to stand on the shoulders of giants um, or to even lean on the shoulders of, right. of, of giants really is it's about going back in time. And, you know, not everybody wants to learn the songs of Cole Porter. Uh, but man, if you do, if you just learn one and today I got to say, YouTube, YouTube is the greatest guitar teacher, <laughs> piano teacher, dance move instructor. I mean, it's just amazing. Like there's, there's someone out there that wants to show you how to play the mandolin break in that Zeppelin song or whatever it is. There's someone out there that's waiting, waiting to show you how to do it. Real complicated G run licks of Doc Watson or Tony Rice, or, you know, I haven't looked at the horns. I'm sure yeah. there's, I'm not sure how, how, but piano is amazing. It's a visual thing. Camera, you know, so piano and guitar, whoo, man. You got some good teachers waiting out there on YouTube for you. And then some really funny ones. Yeah. Like stone dudes in their basement who's, you know, who are still living with their mom. But, you know, it's, it's like, when are you going to take out the trash? I'm trying to teach. I'm trying to teach this. Damn it, mom, I'm recording. I'm trying to teach this crazy train lick. Um, yeah. You know, it's like, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of teachers out there. So that's my thing is like, uh, study the heroes of your heroes. That would be my, my main chunk to get 
I love it. When I when I saw you post that, it, it made me reflect back to a certain part of my my youth in just being a music nerd and all of the music discoveries, like it was like, you would try to go back. It's like, you're almost working your way up a family tree. Right. And yeah. like, I remember in, in college, obviously, you know, a lot of, a lot of alternative rock and college rock was dominate, you know, cause I 89 to 93 is when I was an undergrad right. and had the luxury of being a DJ at the radio station. So all this music getting exposed to, we didn't have the internet like we do now to go easily find stuff, but yeah. you start going through liner notes and like, uh -huh. who are, they're thanking this person, who is it? And then like a whole new world opens up and then you start exploring that. And, and I think without some of that, like, uh, you know, and I heard stories about the Beatles and, you know, it was basically uh, kind of American rock and blues music interpreted mm. through the English is what brought it really back to the States. They showed us. Yeah. Them and the Stones and the right. British Nation showed us how great our music was. Yeah. And and then having the opportunity to go back and listen to, for me, like Muddy Waters and Sun House and going and like even like getting really interested in nerding out on like Delta Blues versus Chicago Blues, right? But yeah, those those right. were fun adventures back in the day. And then then going to the used record shops and like looking for it and just finding like an anthology of artists you hadn't heard was sometimes yeah. I, I wish I could still do that again. But I, I think part of it was the hunt. The hunt is not nearly as rewarding now when it's a Google search away. Yeah, some, some people, yeah, it's true. I go into the record store, talking to the guy that, you know, like, oh, you haven't heard the Velvet Underground yet? Well, just sit down here. You're about to get, you know, like, uh, you know, REM was very helpful in, in getting people, steering people towards back towards that. Um, and the birds in a certain Right, way. right. You know, and then birds to Dylan. And then Dylan is the great, is the one where you're like, oh, okay. He obviously was digesting all this stuff. I'm today sitting around the house. I'm, I'm like, I'm Mance, Lip, Mance Lipscomb. Like, there's one that I just kind of let slip. You know, I was like, Lightning Hopkins. Mississippi John Hurt this man's lips can vinyl and I'm I'm just I play it uh if I'm not creating something on my own yeah. I just play it I just play it and it's it's going in the brain it's like and I and now like just a couple weeks later I, I kind of let him slip you know it's okay okay there's there's you you can't get it all you know sometimes you just gravitate to one thing but if you're out there and you want to find something yeah find the person who you love who do they love love it's like right. it works every time man and it's like it's gonna get it's gonna give you some insight to uh and, and help you build something of your own and i think it goes for painters and poets and and writers and filmmakers too i i, I think it's exactly the same thing like um picasso didn't start drawing in those abstract ways right off the bat you know he's he studied the classic stuff and uh, it definitely goes that way with Bolaño. The, the, Bolaño is uh, the Chilean slash Mexican slash uh, eventually um, lived in, in Barcelona. And, and uh, that writer, all he writes about is poets. His, his book, The Savage Detectives, is a, about finding uh, the heroes of your heroes. I thought when I first read that book, I thought these were all made up characters. Turns out they're all real writers. It's like I started Googling, yeah. you know, when Google came in hand, I'm like, oh, this, this guy's real, uh, you know, Enrique Lins or um, uh, just some, you know, um, the many writers that he turned me on to without a doubt because of his love for this old, this stuff. 
and uh, you know, big so big big shout out to Bolaño. Anybody out there that hasn't gone down that that path, I'm I'm always trying to trying to get him uh, get you know get folks to read him. No, that's great. Thanks, Tim. Before we go, I do want to just uh, if you're if you're all right with. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the latest album, just where people can get it, what's going oh, yeah. on. And <laughs> enough about the, the greats. <laughs> um, hey, yeah. You know, I made a record. This is the, my 10th record. It's called, you don't really know me. And I made it uh, over quarantine time with a band. I decided to get a band together to make it. It's going to come out on black Mesa records, a label based out of Oklahoma. Uh, right down the road from you guys in Iowa and uh, right down the road from everybody. Oklahoma, right. you know, one of my favorite places in the world, birthplace of Woody Guthrie. Um, so Black Mesa Records is going to put out my record in uh, the last week of August in 2021. So it's going to come out this summer. We'll see if there's tour dates behind it, but either way, um, it's a band. It's an ensemble record. Like I made a couple of folk albums, pure folk albums in a row, like a, you know me and the guitar or me and the piano. Yeah. And now this one's got a, some drums and some backbeat behind it and some lyrics and um, <laughs> a lot of carpe diem, a lot of, a lot of 24 hour, like just in this moment in the now lyrics. Um, and uh, you know, thanks everybody for just supporting uh, all your, your, uh, your, your circus members of the planet that are rambling around trying to trying to make ends meet. And for, for anybody out there listening that's a creator or a creative, you know, um, if you're stuck, man, the best thing you can do is call a friend and ask them how they're doing. That's my other piece of advice. Just get out of your own shit and just like call someone, ask them how they're doing and mean it. And then you can get back to wallowing in your own self-pity. <laughs> yeah thanks no that's great i love it and to your point like just and and being present right asking and then be being present for the answer right rather maybe, than yeah maybe even some listening <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh tim this is an absolute pleasure and honor to get to get to talk with you uh thanks so much yeah. for joining me on the the podcast and i'm hoping sooner rather than later you can get back out on the road and uh Either I'll uh, be traveling to Nashville or that you can swing back through Iowa City and we'll get to see you in person. What would the gig be in Iowa City today? I mean, you know, is it, is it a college gig or is it a folk? Is there a folk listening room? Uh, well, we, unfortunately, pandemic took down maybe the best venue in Iowa City, which was oh. the mill. Uh, okay. And so a small intimate space in the back, just a really comfortable spot okay. for creatives. Unfortunately, that's gone, but uh, the Angler awesome. Theater has been remodeled. Oh, that's great. Uh, so that's great. Uh, when things get back to normal, our Mission Creek Festival, which is a celebration of literature, music, and art, which is oh, usually usually part of it. it. Yeah. So um, it's and the way artists and venues are collaborating too. Like there's a new movie coming out. Uh, and series called Ghost Creek. Uh, so it's Mission okay. Creek with, with the creative, but we can't have people. So uh, really appreciate all that they're doing. Oh, I'm going to research that. Yeah, I'm a big yeah. house concert guy now too, because yeah. house concerts and outdoor barbecues, backyard barbecues, the way that, you know, Mance Lipscomb or yeah. Elmore James or Lightning Hopkins would have played gigs like church, church barbecue functions, you know, you just yep. have to go like that. That's coming back for me now. So anybody out there wants to have a barbecue, and, uh, and a one-man band come and kick it. I, I bring my own PA system and just I all get right. 
I'll get down a boogie. Yeah, we uh, I'd love love for anybody listening to take you up on that, or uh, we should talk later. I uh, I'm hesitant to say that one of my one of my hobbies is is slow cooking and barbecue, but I always get nervous Ooh. when I talk to people from the south. That <laughs> I'm not from the south, but I've I've learned a few things about yeah. cooking. I've learned a few things about cooking, and I've definitely learned some guitar playing down here that. It, it it definitely warped and greased up my my uh, my neck work on the guitar. I just it's one of those things. It just ha- it's bound to happen. That's that American music, you know, yeah. that, that Muscle Shoals thing or whatever you want to call it, Texas. <laughs> it's it's bound to seep in if you're paying attention. Right on. Well, Tim, thanks again. Have have a great day, and uh, just really appreciated having you here on the podcast. Thank you so much, Matt. Take care, everybody. When you're down at the bottom with no one to turn to I know one solution to lift you from your blues His voice on the radio Calm and sweet and cool and low Voice on the radio gets you high Voice on the radio Calm and sweet and cool and low Voice on the radio gets you high